Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Welcome, Danielle Crissa. Hi everybody, thank you guys so much for coming, um, so excited to be here, I'm from Canada and so I've been doing, um, this is my second stop on the little tour and um, I love LA and so I'm super excited to be here. Um, I'm just going to tell you sort of what I'm going to do so that you know what's ahead of you. Um, so um, I'm going to introduce all of us, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me and how the Jealous Curator kind of came about and how the book came about. Um, did that sound really Canadian? <laughs> about. Um, and, uh, and then I've got a few questions for these guys and then I will turn it over to you and then you can ask all of us questions. And then if you'd like to have your book signed, we are all going to sit here and sign your book. Um, so, ready? <laughs> okay, so I'm Danielle. Um, I've been writing The Jealous Curator for about um, five years now and I have a Bachelor of Fine Art in Painting and Printmaking and a minor in Art History. This is Jenny Hart. She is an amazing artist um, who draws and embroiders and is just, I have had a huge art crush on her for a very long time. And this is Stephanie Vovis who is an amazing photographer who does very sexy, vampy ladies and uh, we'll show a bit of her work in a minute and um, again I've been a huge fan of hers for years and have written lots of posts about her so and they're both in the book and I'm so thrilled that they're in there and that they're here with me tonight so um, okay is this working come on projector there we go so that's us um, so okay me this is where it all began <laughs> my mom is an artist and my dad is a PhD scientist and uh, when I was little I liked both things and I would steal my mom's art supplies but I was totally into science and I did really well in biology and chemistry in high school and so when it came time to go to university I was totally confused like I just did not know you know and you're 18 so I, I just didn't know which way to go at all and um, so I went with science I went into marine biology because it just seemed much more responsible than art. <laughs> and um, I did well, and, um, but whenever I didn't feel like doing homework, I would draw or paint or whatever. And my PhD dad said, you need to switch to fine art. I was like, what? <laughs> and uh, he said, no, you need to, um, he said, you need to do what you love said my PhD dad, so that totally confused me, and uh, I said, but you know, what about rent and food? And uh, he said, no, it doesn't matter. He said, do what you love and the money will come, and if it doesn't come, you won't care because you'll be happy. So I switched into fine art, 
which did not turn out as well as everyone would have hoped. <laughs> um, I did not fit in at all. I was super designy, which did not work in the very contemporary program that I was in. Um, I had a prof in third year tell me that I needed to go to design school, and my program did my university did not have a design program. <laughs> so you know, I was like, "What? I, you know, I'm about to graduate in a year." And she's like, "Well, no, no, no. Finish your BFA, but then I think you should go to design school." Um, and then right, this is like this is where it all began. Here's the, the dark caverns of my mind. So in fourth year, I was five weeks away from graduating, and. Nobody really liked me. My profs didn't really get me, and that was cool. I had five weeks to go, no big deal. And I had done this body of work for my grad show, um, and I'd sort of, I had been cutting things up and sewing them back onto the canvas, and it didn't look like anything that I had seen before, and so I put it up in a critique, and my prof loved it, which was insane. He loved it. It went on and on and on. I'd never seen anything like this. He thought I'd found a new niche, and I was like, oh my god, five weeks to go, and I nailed it. And so at the end of that class he said his mentor, David Dow, who's a painter from New York, was coming to our class. And this is at UVic in Victoria, Canada. He was coming to our class and there was time for three critiques. Who wanted to show their work? Well, of course, everyone was terrified. We're all, you know, 20 and nobody wanted to do it. But I was like, I just had the crit of my life. So I was like, I'll show my work. So a week later, uh, David Dow showed up and we were sitting in like a U shape on garbage cans with all the work there. And I went first, proud as punch, put up my work. Um, it was supposed to be a 10-minute crit. It was 30 minutes, um, and I got ripped apart by my prof, who had told me that it was wonderful seven days before. It was the exact same body of work. Um, the words, you should never paint again, were in the critique. Um, uh, and I was like this. I, I couldn't even defend myself because I knew I was going to cry and it would be even worse. And so I was on one end of the horseshoe and David Dow was on the other. And I looked at him. He wasn't even looking at the work. He was doing this at me. And I, oh, it was horrifying. So when the crit was done, he picked up his garbage can and came and sat beside me. And he didn't say anything, but it was just sort of like he had my back, you know? It was just like, don't worry, kid. And he sat down. The next person went, got a glowing review. Everything they did was perfect. So we took a break. It was only like 40 minutes into class, took a break. I ran to the bathroom to cry and pull myself together. And I saw David get up and go over to our prof. And when I came back, he was supposed to be there the whole three hours. I came back and he was gone. And I guess he had torn a strip off my prof and said, how dare you speak to a student like that? You know? And he, he said, I'm not staying. This is disgraceful. And he left, but, which was nice for me. But like the damage was kind of done, and I was humiliated, oh, it was horrible. And so um, I, I had five weeks to go till graduation, I couldn't do anything. Every brushstroke I second-guessed, every, and I had other profs saying, what are you doing? Like, you've got work to do for your grad show. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. Um, and I graduated, but I was just broken. And um, I couldn't get a job um, to save my life, and so I, I moved home, took a year off, tried to figure out what I wanted to do, and I thought, you know, I listened to that prof from third year, and I thought, well, maybe I should go into design. So that is what I did. I went to um, design school, and um, I was the top of my class. It was my people. Um, it was amazing. That's where I should have been all along. And art was always in the back of my mind, but I, it was sort of like that bad boyfriend who still kind of loved, but he betrayed you, so you don't really want anything to do with him. And, and so he was always kind of there, but I just ignored it, and I went on with design. And I did very well. It was totally, I was a workaholic, totally my life. I was a creative director. Um, I was winning awards like crazy, and it was great. But art was kind of always niggling in the back of my mind. 
And then in 2006, this little dude showed up. That's my son, Charlie. And um, I decided to quit the ad agency business and stay home with him till he was five, um, which was a life changer, but it was great. And uh, when he was about two and a half, I started going crazy being home <laughs> with a two and a half year old. And I really, I thought, you know what, maybe this is the time to get back into art. Maybe this is my moment. So uh, in the time from graduating to him being born, the internet had also been born. So I started Googling around for artists that I liked, and you know how it can be a black hole, the internet, and there was so much work that I loved. And I always tell people I had a 50-50 reaction when I'd find things I loved. 50% of me was like so inspired and I wanted to rush out and buy canvases and you know become the next great artist of our time. And the other, and then like minutes later I'd be like, oh, but what's the point? I'll never be that good. And I would just would do nothing. So I kept having these like highs and lows. And, um, my husband was like, this is crazy. My bookmarks list was so long. I was depressed all the time. And he said, I think you should start a blog and get this junk out of your head and into the world. And so um, the Jealous Curator was born in 2009. Um, my first few posts, because I have an art history under um, minor, I, I would write my posts like, society's view on blah, blah, blah. And I showed my husband my first post. I was like, what do you think? And he was like, oh, that's really bad, really bad. <laughs> and he said, you know, you are, he said, the difference between, like, there's lots of art blogs out there. He said, the only difference between you and all of the other art blogs is you. So your voice needs to come through, and your taste needs to come through, and that will be the differentiator. You don't hide behind this art history speak. Just speak like yourself. So I started doing that, and um, I... I mean, at first you're writing into a vacuum, right? And I'd, I'd check my Google Analytics and I'd have six, six views. And it would be me twice, my dad three times, you know, my husband from work. And, um, and then one day I checked and I had 43 views. And 27 of them were from New York and I don't know anyone in New York. So I was like, oh my God, you know, somebody's reading this. So I got a little more dedicated and made sure that I was writing all the time. And, and then I always do, um, if you're not familiar with my blog, it's basically I write... I show work from one artist, I write a little blurb about why I love them and a link back to their site. I just do that every day. And so a couple of years into this, um, I was in a playground with my son and a girlfriend of mine is an artist and she was crying in the playground and she said, you know, I just feel like, she said, I, she was totally equating her self-worth with her um, sales. So if she had a great day on Etsy, she felt like not only a great artist, but she felt like a great mom and a great wife and a great woman. And if she didn't have sales for a while, she felt like a shitty mom and a bad wife. And, and it was so equal. And I said, you know, you're not alone. So many people feel like that. And she wouldn't believe me. So I said, you know what, I'm going to write a post about this. And um, that was not like any post I'd ever written. And it was called Jealous and Alone or Maybe Not. And I, I told that exact story and I said, can you guys please chime in and let her know she's not alone? Well, I got so many comments and big comments, like paragraphs from working artists all around the world that I recognized, like Samantha French from New York was like, me too. And she just went on and on and on. So my friend actually printed out all of those comments and made a little book that she now has in her studio. So when she's having a bad day, she flips through those comments to realize that she, in fact, she's not alone at all. Um, and so I didn't want that conversation to be over. You know, with blogs, like a post is fresh for a day or two and then people are on to something else. And I, I didn't want, I loved answering all the comments and I thought, I don't want this conversation to be over. So I started doing workshops across the U.S. called Girl Crash where I would go and they'd be hosted by an artist, a woman artist in a certain city and it'd be a one day sort of block, you know, block, um, we talk about blocks and insecurities and inner critics and 
it was really cool because everyone that I did, the same conversations kept coming up over and over about all of these things. It was such a common feeling. And I always thought it was just me that felt like that. And it was not. It was so many people. So right around this same time, um, I was speaking at Alt Summit, which is a blogging conference. And um, one of the other people there speaking was a, an editor from Chronicle Books. And she was doing a, po a panel called From Blog to book. And so they approached me and said, have you ever wanted to write a book? And I was like, well, like right now? Um, and so a couple months later, I was going to be in San Francisco doing a girl crush event. And so she said, well, why don't you bring a pitch back by? So suddenly I'm like, oh my god, i got to kind of come up with a book idea. And I wanted to do something um, really beautiful, but I didn't want to just do a coffee table book. I wanted to make something with substance that would, you know, help people get through all this junk that I thought I was alone in because clearly I am not alone and I thought, you know, I think I, I'm get, being given this platform by Chronicle to say whatever I want and I thought I want to do something that's going to help people. But I thought 300 pages, like I don't have the answers. I don't have 300 pages worth of answers. But at that point I'd written almost 2,000 posts about working full-time artists who are human, so they have blocks, but don't have the luxury of quitting like I did for 15 years because they've got galleries waiting for them and collectors waiting for them. Um, so how do they do it? So I decided to do these 50 interviews and ask these guys. Um, and so what I want to sort of share with you is all the learnings that I got out of it. I was telling these guys, I think I read the book about 82 times while I was editing and re-editing and rereading and editing. And you know, I, I feel like I'm doing all these speaking events and I hope nobody thinks I'm going to stand up here and like give you the magic of how to break through a creative block because it's so um, individual, right? Some people need time. Some people need proactive projects. Some people need booze. You know, it, it's, it's going to be different for everybody. And um, so basically what I learned, and what, which is a huge relief to me and I hope will be a huge relief to all creative people, is that having blocks just means you're part of this club, a very cool creative club. You can't have a creative block if you're not a creative person. Um, and so it's almost like a badge of honor that you, know, that you can wear. It's like, yeah, I get blocks because I'm a super creative person. Um, you know that they will be over. I promise you they, are always, they always will end um, and there are techniques to get through them. But there's, no, there's nothing shameful in a block and I always had a lot of shame about it. There is no shame in it. And so I've started sort of thinking about it as almost like Girl Scout badges that you need to earn while you're in this club. So that's how I'm going to break down everything that I've learned. Um, so if you're a creative person, you probably earned your first badge when you were little. So I'm going to quote myself. This is from my intro, which is weird quoting myself. But hey, um, <laughs> remember when you were little and you just made stuff because you had a fresh box of crayons or some colorful thread or feather that you found on the way home from school. You knew you had to make something, anything. And this goes for visual artists, writers, musicians. Like, you know, you just, you had to make something. And you didn't care about galleries and you didn't care about book deals and you didn't care about any of that stuff because you just had to make the thing. And as you get older, um, that kind of fades away, which is really sad. But this was your very first badge that you earned. I love making stuff. Um, and then so, you know, as you get older, the problem that seems to be a trend when I talk to all these people was all of us have an inner critic, and some of them are assholes. And um, I think 
about three out of the 50 said, no, no, I have a good relationship with my, you know, I trust my inner critic. The rest were like, no, he's a total dick and I really have no. Uh, <laughs> um, this is a quote from Anthony Zinanos from the UK. The inner critic is like that old friend from school that you wish would leave you alone but be keeps calling and leaving messages. I thought that was hilarious. And not only did I think it was true, but I loved that it wasn't so heavy and like, oh, it was, it's funny, right? And, you know, it, it, it's, it's your badge. My inner critic is an asshole. Wear it with pride, right? Like every other successful working artist feels like that too. You're not alone in that and there is no shame in wearing that badge. Um, I had a huge amount of shame um, about that after my, uh, you know, I had my inner critic was so loud after that crit and um, I never wanted to tell people about it. I never wanted to show my underbelly that, you know, that I had these insecurities. But like now doing this book, everyone has that. So I now happily wear this with pride because if I wear that badge, it means I'm in this cool club that I want to be in. Um, the next sort of big thing, speaking of negative voices, criticism sucks, but it should never ever stop you. Um, you know, no matter what you make, when you make it, there's always going to be criticism, whether it comes from an actual critic or a teacher or your mom. Um, there's always going to be criticism. And you can either allow it to stop you and shut you down, or you can learn from it and move forward. Um, it's just sort of, again, criticism is just sort of part of the deal. And um, this is the badge that we all earn at some point, burned by a critic. Um, and you know, I let that fourth year crit stop me for 15 years. 15 years I didn't make art. I mean, I was designing and I was getting sort of my creative juices from that. But I, I let it stop me and I, I blamed that critic for that waste of time. I, I blamed that prof for all those years. Um, until I wrote this book and read this quote by Amanda Happy from, from Toronto. Uh, no one can wrestle the pencil out of your hand. You get to keep going in absolute defiance. And I thought, you know what, that is so true. I put that pencil down. That, that prof didn't put that pencil. I put it down and didn't pick it back up. Um, and so this is totally true. You need to pick that pencil back up and keep going. Now, the other thing, granted, you might pick the pencil up, but sometimes what you're making will be really, really bad. <laughs> um, and that is a gigantic relief to me. Um, I love this story. This friend of mine, his dad used to work for Andy Warhol in New York, and um, he said that there were thousands of prints that Andy did that got thrown in the dumpster that no one ever, ever saw, because he just didn't like them. He was just experimenting and playing. And, um, but you as an intern, if you went out to the dumpster and took one, you'd be immediately fired. So all of those were destroyed, thousands of them. And I always say, you know, if you think about, even if you ask somebody who's not artsy, to think about Andy Warhol, they can probably tell you five or ten of his pieces, right? Like they're so common knowledge. And um, I think a lot of artists and creative people put that pressure on themselves that they're supposed to do those five or ten masterpieces without all of the thousands that got thrown out, right? You have to give yourself the time and space to make the really shitty stuff that deserves to go in your recycle bin. But in that time, you're gonna, you know, there might be a little bit of a nugget in one that gets recycled, but there might be a little bit of something in there that, you know, leads you to the next thing. That you might throw away too, but it'll lead you to the next thing until you do get to those five or 10 masterpieces. But you have to give yourself that time. Um, this quote, I love this too. You should never be afraid to experiment. That is how you become a genius. 
And I just think it's so true, right? I get really caught up in my head. In those 15 years, I had so many ideas, but I would never make it because they were so perfect in my head. And I thought, what if I mess them up by making them, right? Who cares if you mess it up? No one ever has to see it. You can throw them away, you can chop them up, recycle them, turn them into a different piece of art. No one has to see it if you consider it a failure, but you can't let it stop you. Um, this, I've been doing this. So after reading this 82 times, um, each of the artists gives an unblocking exercise at the end of their interview. And so before this even saw the light of day, I was like into my studio. <laughs> like I would try some of them. And they were just so great. And this badge, this next one, is the one I'm most proud to have now. I made stuff and I still like it. Um, I tend to make things that I really, really love, and then the next morning I'm like, oh my god, what was I thinking? And I'm so, and the inner critic comes back and tells me it's terrible. And um, I've gotten to a point, I think, because I have been experimenting so much and throwing things away and trying again, that I've actually gotten to a point where um, I'm making stuff that I will show people and that I'm actually proud of, which for me is huge. <laughs> Um, especially after that, you know, 15-year hiatus, um, and it's because of the experimentation. Um, so, you know, as I said earlier, I I can't stand up here and go, just do this, this, and this, and all the blocks will be gone because it doesn't really work like that. But um, two things that I do believe work are time and a few fun, fun projects can't hurt, right? So one of the artists, Dolan Guyman, um, he's, he's doing some amazing commercial work right now. He's making his full-on living, and he has staff just from his art. And he said in his interview, um, he actually builds creative blocks into his timelines. So if, he, if, a, if he's got a commission, he'll tell a client, he, instead of saying two weeks, he'll say a month. And then he allows himself two weeks to work and two weeks to be blocked. And I was like, oh my god, that is awesome. Why have I never done that? You know, it's just this huge, like, he's like, it's just part of the process. And like, again, it's just part of the club, right? You, it is a fact. There's no shame in it. Embrace it. And just be okay with the fact that you're going to have days where your hands don't cooperate with your brain or the ideas just don't come. And it doesn't mean you've failed. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be an artist. It just means that you should go outside that day. <laughs> um, and so... A few of, I wanted to read you um, a few of the unblocking exercises that I really, really love. Um, this is Trey Spiegel from New York. Um, make a drawing in black and white and then photocopy the drawing 50 times on cardstock or enough copies that you won't worry about how many you've used. Then alter the image in as many different ways as you can think of with colored pencils, paint, whatever. You can modify the idea and change it in whatever way you like, but the important thing is to turn off your brain and just play with a repeated form and let your mind see where no ideas or thoughts or processes take you. Create your own type parameters, then give yourself a lot of room to play and have fun. I did that one, and it's just so much fun. And then actually hanging the 50 together is just the coolest grid. And it's just not something that you would ever do when you're trying to work on a finished, perfect piece, right? It just lets you be free. Um, Martha Rich from Philly, she said, um, pick an interesting object. I was going to make you guys do this, and then I decided not to. I was going to make you shout it out, but in case you were shy, I thought I better not. Um, <laughs> pick an interesting object, and in one sitting, draw paint represented in a minimum of 100 completely different ways. I use the example of a ring. So you start by drawing a diamond ring, and then maybe you draw a ring around Saturn, or a ring around the rosy, and so on. Things get interesting when you start running out of ideas and are forced to get ridiculous and stop thinking so much. That's a really fun one, too. Um, and then this one, I haven't done this, but I really want to do it. This is Mel Robson. She's a ceramics artist from Australia. 
Choose a mode of transport, bike, train, foot, bus, car, roller skates, unicycle. Throw a die to determine how long you will stay on that mode of transportation. A three followed by a two means you stay on for 32 minutes. A two followed by a four means you stay for 24. Ride this um, for an amount of time and then stop. This is where you can spend the next hour. Explore, observe, collect, walk around, watch, draw, talk, sing, listen, take photos, record sounds, whatever takes your fancy. Just explore somewhere new, really take notice. The idea is just to let something completely random lead you to something new. How fun is that? You know, especially if you're having a really bad day in the studio, like, hop on your unicycle and ride for 24 minutes. Like, even the fresh air is going to help, right? So there's 50 of those in the book. They're all very different, and um, I've tried a whole bunch of them. And I love it. And so um, I think if you give yourself that time and you give yourself the levity and the fun to just go and try a few things, you get to earn this badge. See, it matches the book. Um, and so, you know, the, the fact that you actually are unblocked. And you will get blocked again, and that is okay, because now you have sort of tools and, um, you know, allowing yourself to be blocked from time to time. And so these are all of your badges, and I think there are probably thousands more. Um, I was talking with a friend this morning that there should be a fake it till you make it badge. I kind of like that. Um, I think, you know, wear them with pride and then exhale and realize that we are all in this together, that you are not completely alone, that everyone has their inner critic. Everybody's been burned by a critic at some point. Um, everybody gets blocked, and we're all in it together, and that's what makes us in this club. Um, and so I'm going to introduce you to two of the other people in the club. So I'm going to read my intros for them because it's, instead of me floundering around, this is the most concise way to, <laughs> so Jenny Hart. Um, so Jenny Hart is an, a Los Angeles based artist and businesswoman. She owns Sublime Stitching, an independent DIY company that creates alternative embroidery patterns, kits, textiles and courses. Thousands of people from around the world have been inspired to start embroidering thanks to Jenny. When it comes to her personal art practice, which she considers completely separate, she focuses on drawing and embroidery. She has drawn seriously from a young age when her mother would her enroll her in cl any class she could find. Her mom's right there. Um, <laughs> thank you for enrolling her in classes. Um, you guys, there's seats up here if you want to come and sit down. You're all standing back there. Okay, come on up. Um, <laughs> When Jenny took a year-long break from the University of Kansas at Lawrence, she lived and worked in Paris. Collective jealous sigh. Oh. Um, going to open studios so that she could um, draw live models. As far as embroidery goes, she is completely self-taught. Her alternative education certainly paid off because her beautiful work is now in the permanent collection of the Smithsonian American Art Museum, among others. Um, and then Stephanie, woo, woo, American photographer Stephanie Vovis has been um, a lot of places and seen a lot of things. After traveling around Europe and the United States, she decided to pursue her passion for photography and went back to the East Coast to study at the main media workshops. She got an AA in photography and then moved to Portland, Oregon, where she started a gallery called Barca Lounge. She exhibited her own work and curated shows of other artists and loved it. However, after three years, Stephanie wanted a change, change, and so she made her way to Los Angeles. She started working as a designer for several magazines, and like many part-time artists, no longer had time for photography. Luckily, she changed that. She is now a full-time photographer who specializes in celebrity shoots. That's right, she's taking photos for magazines instead of designing them. So that is it. <laughs> 
So I have a few questions that I wrote down that I was going to ask these guys as sort of that are follow-ups to the things in the book. And then um, I will turn it over to you guys and you can ask any questions that you want to ask. Um, so when I sent out these interview questions to everybody, I kind of felt like... Um, total amateur idiot because I was like I have an inner critic and all this stuff I thought oh my god I'm going to send this to these like really cool artists and they're going to be like yeah no I don't have an inner critic you loser um, and a lot of the questions were very like I was kind of asking them to put their heart on their sleeve you know and I didn't know I, you know a lot of them have agents who I thought would be like don't answer that question and so um, what I was so curious I've never asked these guys is um what did you think when the, like, you know, you agree to do lots of interviews all the time, and normally they ask you about your art practice and stuff, so how did you feel when my question showed up asking you about your self-worth and inner critics? Were you, like, freaked out by it, or were you... <laughs> um, I, we to use the... I think you're supposed to use the... And then you get to drop it at the end. Oh hey. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hello. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hi. Um, I was really into it like what you had asked me and is that on i don't i don't know it was nice well, to be able to oh there you go oh, this is weird yeah i'll try and do okay. it myself. um um i found your questions they were questions I hadn't ever had to answer, <laughs> and You're I really, <laughs> I, I found myself like, oh my goodness, I get to talk about this, and it, I had to spend time on it, and I, I loved being able to talk about it, because no one ever talks about the, that kind of stuff, the creative process, and, whoop. <laughs> um, but I, I loved it. I loved talking about it. And I found that the questions are very personal, but I didn't care. I was like, I will just go all out and tell you the and answers you because it was fun. It was actually fun to answer <coughs> those personal questions. Turning it off. Okay. Oh, uh, you need to hold your mic closer. That's all. Just because they can Sorry, I'll be better next time. There, that was good. <laughs> um, well, it was the first time I'd ever been asked in an interview with what I equated my self-worth. <laughs> yeah, so that was a pretty big question. Um, I, I enjoyed it. it. It's really, it's not often that I'm asked um, to go through the process of how do I deal with, you know, how do you deal with criticism, which takes so many different forms, you know. There's the criticism that you value, there, that comes from somebody that you trust, um, and who really is trying to help you, and there's what I call passive criticism, which is, you know, what the internet is rife with, and um, which you should place the least amount of value on, but which manages to touch you the hardest. It's the, it is so, it, it really is the hardest thing to shake off. Um, but the questions that you put in the book um, were really fun. They're really, you know, they really went off the path of the typical things that I'm asked. So I liked, you know, it, whenever I'm interviewed, I'm always hoping that you're going to be able to talk about the parts of your process that you feel are the most interesting to someone, not just how did you get started or what's your advice, and so they were really well tailored, and I liked that they were different for each artist, so I thought that made it a very interesting thing, um, you know, not just to participate in, but for me to also read the other artists' responses. Cool, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so Stephanie, she's kind of embarrassed that I use this as the pull quote, but I just think it's so awesome. 
Oh, where did it go? Jenny, Steph. Um, so, she, um, <laughs> okay, so, I, I, was, I was so enamored with the fact that she like left this design job and just gave it all up for photography. And I was like, wow, how did you make that jump? And she's like, well, the recession happened and I lost my job. Um, and so the pull quote that I took out of her whole interview was, I bought a digital camera with the very last of my credit. I figured I was broke and jobless anyway. Why not go for it full force? <laughs> Which I just thought was awesome. Um, and so I, wanted, I didn't follow up in the interview, but I wanted to know, like, so when that happened, were you completely freaking out or did you think okay, I'm just going to use this as a springboard to go for it. And, and yeah, or were you like, oh my God, I can't, what am I going to do? Okay, now hold it really close to your mouth. Okay. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> um, well, when it happened, um, the recession, it was pretty major for me. Um, I suddenly lost my well-paying job and it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Because I didn't really have other talents that were able to create income. But I was a photographer in my mind and that's what I loved. But <clears throat> I never had the guts to go for it full force. So, sorry, I'm so emotional. Um, <laughs> so I was like, what the hell? Oh my god, I just lost this job that was well paying but very not what I should be doing with my life. Designing porn mags. Sorry, wow. but yeah. that's what it was. For, yeah. And really. Um, so I was like, fuck it, I am gonna shoot. <laughs> tell, tell, them, tell them who you're shooting for on Tuesday. Playboy. Yeah. So now she went from designing porn magazines to shooting for Playboy. Yeah. I think that is the most awesome thing ever. But um, but but I I did my art and like Playboy's cool because it's like wow it's a commercial aspect of I guess what I could do but I never would have done it unless I had that like terrible like given that cliff to jump off. Yeah. And so it was great. Yeah. It was horrible, but it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I needed that very severe push. Yeah. Okay, I'm shutting off. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, one thing that I just found, I was going to, I was toying around with doing my master's, and what I wanted to do th for my thesis was, this is for Jenny, um, embroidery as a fine art because it's traditionally a craft, but it, you see it so much now in fine art. And I have my own theories about what, what separates them, but I just wanted to ask Jenny, like, because you do um, sublime stitching is more craft and commercial, and then your own work is fine art. And so what do you think the difference is? Um, well, I just want to preface this by saying she was going to attempt this as her thesis, and I'm going to try and address yeah. this question if you... Um, I get asked this I didn't a lot. do my thesis. <laughs> no. Well, I, I think about this a lot. I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I, yes, I do think that there is a divide between art and craft, and I think that there's art, craft, and crafting, to me, in my mind, are different things. Um, but it, there's a lot of gray area, and for me, what a lot of it comes down to is intention. Like, what is your intention? Are you making this as, is your intention that it's art? Is your intention that it's just craft and hobby? Well, even in those things, someone can come along and say, that's not art. 
Or someone can come along and look at your hobby craft and say, that's art. So it's really sure. complicated. You know, there are um, folk artists who've worked for years doing things that it's like, well, I collected bottle caps and I covered my house in them and I just thought it was a fun thing to do and somebody discovers it and goes, this is visionary work and it's important and it's relevant. Um, so who's to say that that's just craft? And then, um, you know, I, I deal with, I, when I started doing my work in embroidery, um, I have a traditional background in fine art, and I was drawing and doing collage, and my father was a photographer. And doing hand sewing or hand embroidering really wasn't part of my upbringing. It wasn't part of an upbringing like it was for my mom and my grandmother. And so it was actually something I was specifically disinterested in. I was not interested in crafting. I w was interested in fine art. <clears throat> and I became really interested in adopting a quote-unquote low craft medium for my art practice, but I didn't know how to do it. Um, and that was where my design company came into play, was once I started embroidering, which my mom got me started doing, um, I became obsessed with it. I became obsessed with it for its um, the meditative aspect of it. I became obsessed with it as a new technique that was completely foreign to me, learning different stitches, different types of material and fabrics. Um, and marrying it with illustration and comic art, of which I'm a huge fan. Uh, but then a year later, I started thinking, you know, there's, where's the design element for this gone? It's 30 or 40 years out of date. I, I don't want to stitch geese and bonnets and bunnies and teddy bears. And, I, you know, I real, I, and, and I love great design. I love good commercial design. And I felt like there really was, that was lacking from needlework at that point. So I started Sublime Stitching to do hot iron embroidery transfers, patterns, kits, education basically the company that I wish existed when I wanted to learn how to embroider. Um, and, you know, it's, I view it as kind of an extension of my artistic practice at the same time because I do things with my very commercial craft design company that commercial craft design companies would never do. Uh, Jim Woodring has done patterns for me. Uh, Tara McPherson. Uh, I like to approach fine artists who are never associated with hobby crafts and get them in the mix. And I view it as an extended collaboration where their work is introduced to an audience that's really into needlework but maybe has never read Frank or Jim. Um, and they get to outline and work, play with his artwork. He gets to see how somebody else plays with it. And so, so cool. it's a hard, you know, know. It, it's, it's, it's a hard, I, I was on a panel once before and um, the question came up of like, is it art, is it craft? <clears throat> And I, I wish I could remember who said it. And the other person who was on the panel with me became enraged that I said this and like got a response from the audience because I think she thought I was saying it. And the, it was the question isn't is it art, is it good art? And that's not for me to say. And there are a lot of people who decide that that is that th their decision. And uh, uh, so I, I think it's I think I think asking the question is a healthy part of the process in and of itself. It gets you to look at where the person's coming from, how they're using what they're using, why they're doing it. Maybe they hadn't thought of it as being art. Maybe they did think of it as art, and maybe it's really just craft. Right. Um, or like the Smithsonian show, that collection, uh, and tell me if I'm talking too long, um, the, that, one of the things that was so interesting about the Smithsonian show was previously this collection was designated to those who were the best at their craft. I am the best at making a wood-turned bowl. Nobody can make a better wood-turned bowl than I can. <laughs> but conceptually, it wasn't art. And that was fine. It wasn't really meant to be. But it pushed the boundaries of what that art could be. And the Smithsonian, the Renwick, started looking at what was going on in craft now, where they were saying, well, that's not really what's happening now, is you have fine artists 
like me who are saying, well, I've never worked in embroidery before. I'm going to get dirt, my hands dirty and play with it, and here are the results of it, and it's something that we hadn't seen before. So, yeah, so I, cool. I agree with you that it's a really fascinating discussion about art and craft. Mm -hmm. So that's my best answer. That was good. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you guys if you have any questions for any of us. I think my, my first question is, how did you choose the 50 artists you chose? Did, they, did you try and be encyclopedic or people I sort of picked my dream 50. Um, I tried to do, I wanted people from all over the world. I wanted a fairly equal balance between men and women, and I wanted a fairly equal balance between disciplines. Like, I didn't want it to be all painters. I wanted to make sure that I was sort of covering everybody. Um, some of them I've written about before. Some of them I hadn't. They were just people that I really admired. So I put together my list of 50 and went back to Chronicle with it and said, this is who I want to ask. And there was a few people that I was like, one of them was Wayne White. He was going to come tonight, but he's out of town. I love him. And uh, I said, you know, I really want to ask Wayne White, but I don't know, he won't do it. And my editor was like, well, who cares? Like, if he says no or doesn't write you back, so you're, you're in the exact same position that you'd be in right now. So, and Wayne was the first one to write me back and say, absolutely, I'm in. So, um, 48 of them said yes. Two said no. They were women who had just had babies and were super overwhelmed and decided that they did not want to do this project, but I had other people, you know, I had a list of about 10 more, and so, um, yeah, it was just really, um, it, it's just 50 of, that I super duper love. Yeah. What oh, you, yeah, go ahead. What role would you say um, artistic community plays in breaking through creative blocks? No, I think it's huge. I think that's, I think that's all of it. I think so many people, did you hear the question? What role does community play in breaking through blocks? I think that it's huge. I think the problem with blocks is when people feel like they're completely alone in a vacuum or in a silo and it's only them that's going through it. That's what a wonderful thing about blogs. You know, you suddenly you start to reach out and um, I actually just posted, um, I did a post on my blog the other day that a, um, a woman sent me a letter and she'd read the book and it, was, uh, it made me cry twice when I read it because it was everything that I'd ever wanted anybody to get out of this book. And... Um, I, I said, would you mind if I... It was very emotional, and I thought maybe she'd want it to be private, but I said, would you mind if I posted it on my blog? And she was like, oh, okay. So I did, and I got so much response from it. People going, oh, my God, her name's Claire. And they said, I'm so glad that you posted Claire's story because I feel exactly like her. And it was just like, as soon as you do that, you get the me too's, the me too's, me too's, me too's, and suddenly it, it takes 20 pounds off your shoulders because you are in a community. You are not by yourself in this. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I think that's the key, is surrounding yourself with like-minded people and um, doing it together and, and having a laugh about it. You know, it's not, it's not the end of the world, you know, which I thought it was for 15 years. It is not. And if you're surrounded by like-minded people, they'll tell you the same. Yeah, I'm really interested in uh, what you were saying, uh, like actors, musicians. I'm more into the music world, and I'm very interested in right, going into motion picture industry and writing film music scores and I'm knocking my brains out in this business and I wrote a piano composition a year ago I spent 11 months writing this thing it's Italian piece threw a lot of jazz chords in it I edited it and get it recorded working another composition and I'm going to go crazy <laughs> good for you that's amazing <laughs> good for you Mm -hmm. Stephanie? Oh, gosh. 
Turn on your mic. <laughs> how do you? I'm on. Okay. How, how is coming out of the world of porn and editing and see that sort of imagery? How did that influence the imagery that uh, you're creating now? How did that drive you or influence you in any way? If it did. Mm, I don't think it did influence me. The only way it might have is that I wasn't afraid of nudity. <laughs> um, but I liked shooting nudes when I was 20 in photo school. Anyway, like I knew I loved doing nude photography then, although it was scary, but it's just odd that it ended up I did a lot of work with magazines like that. Um, I guess it made it more normal to me to see nudity constantly. Um, and I, I don't see it as weird, but it was something that happened to me before anyway. Like, I wanted to do nudes. I think it's cool. I think it's so nice when there's just skin and it's <laughs> nice. That's all. Not porn. Don't like the porn. But <laughs> But the beautiful, beautiful skin is nice. <laughs> Shutting off. <laughs> yep. So, uh, one of the nicest things I imagine about having a blog is that you get to communicate with people all over the country. Yeah. The world. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that there's like a different sort of rhythm or style to different areas as far as our artistic communities like Los Angeles versus Seattle or... Um, as far as this type of work that's coming out of there, or um, I don't know. I can't really tell, honestly. Like, um, I'm. I guess I'm getting to a point now where I find somebody, and I can usually take a pretty good guess of where they're from. Like, if it's UK or if it's the US or whatever, and I, I can make a pretty good guess before I even go to their bio and find out where they're from. But I think that's just because I see thousands and thousands of you know, pieces of work every day. Um, but I think as far as this whole discussion goes, everybody's exactly the same. Like, I get comments from people all over the world that um, you would not know where they were from, and it's all the same issues. And there's only, like, four or five issues, and you hear them over and over and over again. And um, one of the coolest, like, you know, I do get comments from all over the world, and some of them come in broken English, which is kind of cool. And I had a woman email me uh, a couple weeks ago and say, you know, I'm in Israel. I really want to buy your book but Amazon doesn't ship here like what do I do and I was like oh I, I don't know so I emailed Chronicle and I said you know what can I tell this lady and they wrote me back and said well here's the five stores in Tel Aviv that are carrying it and I was like what <laughs> and um, and so I emailed her and she's like oh there's one down, you know that store's down the street from my house and so it's just kind of this really cool global community right and and um, I think everybody and I just found out it's being translated into Korean oh that's right my sister just married a Korean, so he told me, he's like, I put in a word at the consulate. <laughs> um, but it, it is such a common thing. I don't think it matters where you're from. I think it's just the creative soul is, you know, yeah. the same. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. First of all, thank you. I'm thank you my question is, I am an artist, but I do not have the formal credentials. I don't have a fine arts degree or a design degree. And the block that I keep on running up against is, I look at a website and go, oh, I could be on that. And everyone listed has this incredible biography. 
So I'm just curious. No. Totally. <laughs> totally. So when I started this, part of it was to get all this toxic shit out of my head and, you know, into the world. The other thing was I was thinking about maybe going back to school to become a curator, right? And um, I looked into it, and in Canada, you need a... Um, I have a minor in art history, but that's not enough. You need a full undergrad, a master's, and a PhD. And I was like, you know what? I am way too old and do not have that kind of cash. And so I was all defeated. And my husband was just, he's a social media strategist, which is very handy to have in your house when you start a blog. And he said, um, he was like, I will bet you if you start a blog, he said, I will bet within two to five years you'll curate your first show PhD free. And um, February 22nd, um, a few years ago, was my two-year anniversary, and my first show opened in Washington, D.C. on March 4th. So I had to listen to a lot of, told ya, but, you know, he was absolutely right. And I, I curated, it was a huge gallery, two stories, whatever, and they were like, we'd like, really, really like you to curate the show, and I was like, oh, I can totally do that. <laughs> like, I had no idea what I was doing, and I just showed up there, and I was like, yes, hammered some stuff. I didn't know what I was doing, and since then I've done a whole bunch, but it's, I, I wouldn't worry about it. You know, it's just, if you're, if you're making art, you're making art. It doesn't matter. And nobody needs to know. Like, when I write a post about, I never talk about their schooling or anything. I wouldn't worry about it. Just make, make, make. Oh, how do you find the artists that you post? I stay up very late after my seven-year-old goes to bed. Um, I spend a lot of time online. Um, it was harder when I first started because it was really just like I would just, just literally stay up till three in the morning just searching, searching. And that was another actually huge relief on my part because I, I, you know, I wanted to be featured on blogs and I wanted to be in galleries. And I'd find a gallery site, say a New York gallery site that had 100 wrapped artists. And I'd go through all 100 of them looking for tomorrow's post. And I didn't like any of them and I didn't want to write about any of them. But they were all still wrapped by a gallery in New York. And it started to make me realize that there's kind of a place for everybody, right? And you just have to find the gallery or the blog or the collectors or whatever that are right for you. And it kind of made me realize, like, oh, I don't have to be so hard on myself if I'm not on every blog or on, in every gallery. There's a, there's a space for everyone. Now I'm really lucky because I probably get... Well, it's terrible and I don't write everybody back. I get probably 20 to 40 submissions a day from artists and um, it's very overwhelming um, because I really I do go and look at everybody but like getting back to them is so hard but now I can kind of just sit at my desk with a coffee and awesome art just pours in and you know my whole week is set so that's kind of handy um, and then I find that things feed each other right like I'll find one artist that I really love and then I go to their site and they've got a few of their friends linked on there and then chances are they're sort of in the same similar so I spend a lot of time on the computer yeah. <laughs> social justice issue that you think about in your process and, and how you may incorporate that into your art and, and your businesses? Hmm. Social justice? How, how do you mean? Uh, maybe issues of um, racism, um, things of that nature, global, global issues. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you go first. I'll go first. <laughs> um, well, I always... Well, I, I, I've always been given the leading question in interviews of, could you please talk about the feminist aspect of your art? And I always say, well, there, there isn't one. I don't do it as a feminist. It's not a feminist statement. Um, but the thing is, is that as I was embroidering it, and you know, I, when I first started embroidering from the first time I did it, I embroidered for three hours at the first sitting, and three hours the next night, and four hours the next, and for five years I embroidered for four or five hours every day. And I started to become enraged 
at how underappreciated this handcraft was. <laughs> you know, that this was looked at as women's work. That I would go to a flea market or an antique mall and you would see, all, and all of a sudden my eyes were open to all of these linens that had hand embroidery on them that, that had a dollar on it. And I was like, somebody, oh my gosh, this woman had amazing handwork. <laughs> you know, but that's really not built into the work that I do. It's not a statement. I'm not trying to prove anything with it. But if there's a thing that came out for me personally in doing it, I just actually became aware of how, you know, people look, it's like, yeah, it's embroidery. Yeah, it's what women's, women do. Yeah, it's just cute. I was like, this takes such skill. This takes such patience and such thoughtfulness. And, and uh, but that, that's, that's it for me. That's, that's the, the, yeah. Oh, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming. What is that? What kind of work do you do? Well, I I'm kind of a milliner. I make and it's for bridal, but you know I have fine art degree. And I just said I don't want to be a starving artist, and as long as I'm spelled, as long as I'm making something. I do my best to make it a piece, you know, work of art, but um, I don't feel secure with myself. An artist. Do you find that, there, did you guys hear that? Um, do you feel like there's shame in saying it's craft? I feel, I can't say I can't say I'm an artist, I can't say I'm a crafter, I can't, but I'm definitely a maker. I don't like maker. Maker is so too, like, Etsy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I went through a lot of that because my work is very, I thought, crafty. You know, I, I embroider on things as well, and I just sort of felt like really confused by that too like does this you know and that was some criticism that I got that it was crafty and I was like is that a bad thing like should I be ashamed of that and um, I think it is a, it's just your state of mind what you believe you're doing if you um, if you see it as art or craft or I don't even know that you have to label it um, you know you just if you if if making something makes you happy I think that's good who cares no you know and I think um who was it? I think Leah Giberson in here said that for the longest time she had art director on her business card and she said finally one day, I think she turned 45 and she was like, ah, oh, screw it. And changed it to say artist and just really tried to embrace it. And a lot of people said that they have, they still don't call themselves an artist uh, if they're at a dinner party. They don't introduce themselves that way because they feel like they're, they, are, they don't have the rank to say it yet, whatever that means. So I don't know, I don't, I would just avoid the labels and just enjoy what you're making and, um, you know, tell people what you make. I don't think you have to say one way or the other. Um, and I, that's why I asked you if you have shame in calling it a craft because I did for the longest time and now I don't at all. Now it's just, this, these are the things that I make and these are the techniques that I use. Well, I the end. craft yeah, I think I think whatever you want to call it, as long as you're enjoying yourself and you're proud of it, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. I can feel you back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! yeah. 
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.